Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, Nehemiah chapter 10. We concluded chapter 9 last week, and we're going to study Nehemiah chapter 10 today. Now we're going to deal with some interesting nuances that continue to connect some dots. So we're going to weave around a little bit today. Now the last few verses of this long prayer of repentance that characterizes chapter 9 made a statement that we discussed last time, but I want to emphasize it to begin our lesson because I think it's important to our faith. It comes from verse 32 of chapter 9. It starts like this. Now therefore our God, great, mighty, fearsome God, who keeps both covenant and grace, let not all this suffering seem little to you that has come upon us, our king, our leaders, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, on all your people from the time of the kings of Asher until this very day. I want to focus on the clear statement of fact and truth that God keeps both covenant and grace. Not one or the other. And the reason is that there is this unfounded, erroneous, destructive doctrine that has crept into Christianity. It is that in times past, God kept only covenant But now, since the advent of Christ, he keeps only grace. And thus, believers are asked to choose covenant or grace. Covenant, which is referring to the covenant of Moses, the law, or grace, usually referring to the free gift of salvation offered by Christ. Now, naturally, this false doctrine leads to yet another false dichotomy that says we must also choose between the Old Testament with its foundation of covenant or the New Testament with its foundation of grace. We must choose one or the other as our Bible because this doctrine sets up a premise that is rigid, uncompromising. It's an either-or matter. Bottom line, Much of Christianity today says covenant is wrong, grace is right. Yet here we have a biblical statement that God keeps both covenant and grace. That is, it's not an either or matter. It's not even an issue of choice. The two governing dynamics of covenant and of grace operate together in God's hand. So, should we be startled by this statement? I mean, is this the first time that we've heard in the Old Testament about God's grace being in operation pre-Christ? Actually, the first mention of God operating His grace is found far earlier in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we read this. Adonai said, I will wipe out humankind whom I've created from the whole earth, Not only human beings, but animals, creeping things, and birds in the air, for I regret I ever made them. But Noah found grace in the sight of Adonai. 
So here we have the first recorded act of God directly scripturally described as grace. And it is with Noah before the great flood. The Hebrew word used is chen, chen, and it means favor or grace. It has no other meaning. And so of about 20 English Bible versions that I researched, all use the word grace. There's no disagreement. So why is it insisted upon that grace is an exclusive New Testament dispensation that replaced the Old Testament dispensation of covenant? Thus the Levites recitation of this prayer of Nehemiah 9 proves that they fully understood the concept of God's grace as not only being active in their lives but also active right alongside the law covenant and since the Levites had just a a few days earlier concluded reading the law the covenant of Moses to the people it is no wonder that they chose to include this statement of confession about the Lord keeping both covenant and grace in their prayer of repentance because of all places in the Bible we also find mention of active grace in the law itself in Deuteronomy 7.9 from this you can know that Adonai your God is indeed God the faithful God who keeps his covenant and extends grace to those who love him and observe his commandments to a thousand generations So we find God extending grace during Noah's day before the law was created. We find Him extending grace as a principle contained within the law itself. And now in Nehemiah, we find grace as a fully understood characteristic of the Lord. 900 years after the law, but 400 years before Christ was born. I intend this not only as a faith builder for you, but as instruction that you can use to challenge what must be challenged in our day. The false law versus grace doctrine that has so weakened the church and placed an impenetrable and intentional wall of separation between Jewish and Gentile worshipers of God. Well, after a long confession and statement of repentance, chapter 9 ended with a request of God to once again save the Jews from their predicament. And their predicament is that even though they're back living in Judah, Judah at this time is nothing more than a Persian province. And their king is not a Jew of Davidic descent, but rather is a Gentile pagan, a Persian So in their minds, they remain as slaves of a foreign power. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 10 together. Nehemiah chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1145. Nehemiah chapter 10. In view of all this, we are making a binding covenant putting it in writing, having it sealed by our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. On the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah, the Tershita, the son of Achaliah, Zedekiah, 
Sraya, Azariah, Yirmiyah, Pashkur, uh, Amaria, Malkia, Hatush, Shivnya, Maluk, Harim, Miramot, Ovadiah, Daniel, Ginton, Baruch, Meshulam, Abiyah, Miamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemayah. These were the Kohanim, these were the priests. The Levites were Yeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benwi, a descendant of Henadad, Kadmiel and their kinsmen, Shevanyah, Hodiah, Kelatah, Playah, Hanan, Mikah, Rehov, Hashavyah, Zakur, Sherevyah, Shevanyah, Hodiah, Bani, and Benwi. The leaders of the people are Parosh, Pachat Moav, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bevai, Adonia, Bikvai, Adin, Ater, Hiskia, Azur, Hodia, Hashum, Betzai, Harif, Anatot, Nevai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshev, Meshev, Meshezavel, sorry, Zadok, Zadwa, Platya, Hanan, Ananya, Hoshea, Hananya, Hashuv, Halochesh, Pilka, Shovech, Shachum, Hashavnya, Maseya, Achia, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Bana. The rest of the people the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the Torah of God and along with their wives and sons and daughters, everyone capable of knowing and understanding, joined their kinsmen and their leaders in swearing an oath, accompanied by a curse, a curse of noncompliance, as follows. We will live by God's Torah given by Moses, the servant of God, and will perform and obey all the commandments, rulings, and laws of Adonai our God. We will not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land or take their daughters as wives for our sons. If the peoples of the lands bring merchandise or food to sell on Shabbat, we will not buy from them on Shabbat or on a holy day. We will forego planting and harvesting our fields during the seventh year and collecting debts then. We will impose on ourselves a yearly tax of one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, for the offerings on Shabbat, on Rosh Hodesh, at the designated times and other holy times, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the work connected with the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people will cast lots in connection with the wood offering so that it will be brought to the house of our God according to our father's clans at specified times year by year and then be burned on the altar of Adonai as prescribed in the Torah. Every year we will bring the first fruits of our land and the first fruits of all fruit from every kind of tree to the house of Adonai. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and of our livestock as prescribed in the Torah and the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests administering in the house of our God. 
We will bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every kind of tree, wine and olive oil to the Kohanim, the priests, in the storerooms of the house of our God, along with the tents from our land for the Levaim, the Levites, since they, the the Levites, take the tents in all the cities where we farm. The Kohen, the priest, the descendant of Aaron, is to be with the Levites when the Levites take tents. The Levites will bring the tenth of the tenth to the house of God, to the storerooms for supplies. For the people of Israel and the descendants of Levi are to bring the contribution of grain, wine, and olive oil to the rooms where the equipment for the sanctuary, the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers are. We will not abandon the house of our God. The opening words of this chapter are typically described as a covenant renewal ceremony. However, the word covenant is not really used here. It's only assumed. Even though our complete Jewish Bible and almost all other English versions say in verse 1, in view of all this, we are making a binding covenant or something similar. The word that is being translated into covenant is amanah. And it is not the customary word for covenant, which is berit. Now, amanah more means a statement of faith, an agreement. Many scholars say that used in the way that it's used here, that amanah and berit are virtually synonymous. I don't agree at all with that. They are two quite different words used for quite different purposes. A careful reading of the terms of this agreement doesn't allow for this being a covenant renewal ceremony. Further, an amanah doesn't carry the weight of a berit, a covenant. And so we don't see any of the standard covenant-making procedures that usually involve salt and or blood. So what we have here is not a renewed covenant per se, but rather a man-made agreement among the Jewish people people, backed up with signature seals and a vow, to a newly written statement of faith. And that statement of faith is expressed beginning at verse 28, it concludes at verse 38. Now, it's become customary in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to refer to the people, the leaders, the Levites and the priests as various parts that together form a group. And this is in order to signify that every level of Jewish society is participating. So in verse 1, we see that this written document was signed, it was sealed, by the leaders, meaning the lay leaders, the Levites, and the priests. And together they represent all of Jewish society, at least the part that resides in Judah. Please note that 95% of Jewish people living in that day did not live in Judah. But rather they lived in various parts of the Persian Empire. Today they are known as the Diaspora. And they had no representation in this agreement. Now the first signatory mentioned is Nehemiah. He is given his usual Persian title of Tirshita which roughly translates as governor. 
Now he is given the honor of being the first to sign, but then what immediately follows is a list of priests. This presents us a bit of a head-scratcher to find Nehemiah listed in the same list as the priests. And especially so when we find that Ezra's name is nowhere mentioned as a signatory to this document. See, some scholars say that whoever wrote this section was a poor historian and they mixed up Ezra with Nehemiah. In other words, Ezra's name should have been here instead of Nehemiah's, especially since he was a priest. However, Nehemiah is here specifically called the Tirshita, a title that can't ever be ascribed to Ezra. So whatever the purpose of putting Nehemiah here and omitting Ezra was on purpose. It was not accidental. And we're not going to speculate about why. Next, the Levites are listed. And then starting in verse 15, the lay leaders of the people are listed. Then in verse 29, we're told that the rest of the lay people and the priests and the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, who had separating themselves, separated themselves from the peoples of the land, joined in swearing an oath to the terms of the statement of faith. So why aren't these other Levites and priests named instead of just lumping them all together as the other ones? And we can't know for sure. But since this part of the book of Nehemiah is obviously written by later editors who took documents and information and formulated some kind of a summation of what went on, they apparently didn't have everyone's name and or maybe found no reason to include everyone. Perhaps the list would have been far too lengthy. Perhaps the names we do find recorded are just the most well-known or perhaps the most senior lay leaders and priests and Levites. However, by saying that all the rest of the people and the religious leadership participated in the vow, it kind of ties up loose ends to make it clear that this was a unanimous decision of everyone present. Not just the leadership foisting something upon the people without their consent. But now we're reminded of a statement that has caused so much heartburn among Bible translators and pastors and rabbis that it's hard to quantify. Verse 29 speaks of all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land. This is referring back to chapter 9 of Nehemiah. There we read, starting at verse 1, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel, wearing sackcloth with dirt on them, assembled for a fast. Those descended from Israel separated themselves from all foreigners. Then they stood up and confessed their own sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. Now this heartburn revolves around what is seen as a forced division of people that is purely along racial lines. That is, hereditary Jews can participate, but all others cannot. Further, it is almost universally assumed by Bible scholars, many rabbis, even Rashi, and pastors that this is essentially a repeat of what happened in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Let's revisit that for just a few minutes. I want you to turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. 
just go back one book, Ezra chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1128. We're just going to look at the first four verses. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the Kohanim and the Levaim, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands and their disgusting practices. The Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of the women from these nations as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has assimilated to the peoples of the lands. Moreover, the officials and leaders have been the main offenders in this treachery. When I heard this, I tore my robe and tunic. I pulled hair from my head and beard. I sat down in shock. All who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled around me when confronted with the treachery of these exiles. And I sat there in shock until the evening offering. So here Ezra is said to have found out that many of the wives of the Jews living in Judah were foreigners, not Jews. This news caused Ezra to become unglued and fall into despair because he understood the gravity of the situation from both a a spiritual and a Torah perspective. Now notice that at the end of verse 1, it speaks of the foreign peoples and their disgusting practices. In other words, these foreign wives that the Jews married did not give up their pagan beliefs or their false religions and make Jehovah God of Israel their one and only God. They were not at all like Ruth, who is a Moabite, and Moab is one of the listed people groups that these illegitimate foreign wives were taken from said in her famous pronouncement of conversion back in Ruth 1, 14-17 again they wept out loud then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye but Ruth stuck with her. She said look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God you go back after your sister-in-law but Ruth said don't press me to leave you and stop following you for wherever you go I will go Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I'll be buried. May Adonai bring terrible curses on me and worse ones as well if anything but death separates you and me. So completely unlike our situation in Ezra chapter 9, The foreign women that the Jews married did not make the Jewish people their people, did not make the Jewish God their God. They did not become Jews. What to do? Well, we read about that in Ezra chapter uh, 10. So let's go back and take a quick peek at that to refresh our memories. Just one page over, 1129. We're going to read the first six verses. Chapter 10 of Ezra. While Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrated before the house of God, a huge crowd of Israel's men, women, and children gathered around him, and the people were weeping bitterly. 
Shekaniah, the son of Yechiel, one of the descendants of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have acted treacherously towards our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. We should make a covenant with our God to send away all of these wives along with their children in obedience to the advice of Adonai and of those who tremble at the mitzvah, the commandment of our God. Let us act in accordance with the Torah. Stand up, do your duty, for we are with you. Take courage and do it. And Ezra stood up. And he made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear that they would act according to what had been said, and they took the oath. Ezra then left his place in front of the house of God and went to the room of Yochanan, the son of Eliashiv. And after going there, he neither ate food nor drank water because he was mourning over the treachery of these exiles. The lay leaders of Judah, here in Ezra, decided there was no choice but to divorce these pagan wives. But this wasn't really divorce in the technical sense because it was not considered a legitimate marriage in God's eyes for a Jewish man to marry a foreign woman who refused to convert. Nonetheless, this was painful beyond imagination. It would have created hardships, in some cases very severe, for these cast-off women and their young children that went with them. Some commentators say that this was a matter of choosing between the lesser of two evils, to remain married in an ungodly marriage or to divorce, both of which, of course, God hates. I don't fully agree, because this would not have been a true legal divorce because there was never a true legal marriage. However, it certainly violates the fundamental God principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that is loving your fellow human beings and treating them well. Ezra recognized that the Jews had put themselves in an impossible predicament because of their sinful choices. But if they were going to move forward away from their rebellion and in back into obedience to the Lord, what choice was there but to separate themselves from their pagan foreign wives who were not God-worshippers? Now, is that what's essentially happening again in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10? Many Bible scholars say yes, that's exactly what's happening. I say no, unequivocally no. It's not what's happening. There's no divorce happening here. First, in Ezra, this matter was specifically concerning marriages. It directly speaks of wives and their children being separated from their Jewish husbands and fathers. No such mention of wives is present in Nehemiah 9. Rather, those descended from Israel, a general group, are to separate themselves from all foreigners, another general group, because of what happened a few years earlier with Ezra and the sending away of these foreign wives, we can safely assume that there were no foreign wives <coughs> present here in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. And if they were at one time, these wives were no longer considered foreigners, but they had converted. Even so, these converts would not have been descended from Israel meaning biologically descended from Jacob. 
And there is no mention of anybody being sent away. It's only that those participating in these ceremonies had to be separated from foreigners. The foreigners, including non-hereditary Jews, didn't have to leave Judah. They just couldn't participate in the prayer of repentance of Nehemiah 9 or in the vow ceremony to adhere to a new statement of faith, which is what we read in Nehemiah 10. Now, let's take a look at the statement of faith that the Jews are making. From a broad perspective, what they seem to be doing is picking out certain elements of obedience to the Lord as based upon Torah law and then highlighting them. Why these particular things? Why not something else? Probably because these are things they had not been doing recently or historically and thus they vow to reverse that trend. And also because this list consists of foundational behaviors needed in order to live, they believe, the lifestyle of a redeemed people. And there is a third angle to this as well. They are adapting the 900-year-old Torah to a much more modern life under a set of circumstances that weren't necessarily contemplated by the law. More on that later. Here is the list of subjects addressed by this statement of faith. Obedience to God's Torah as the source of law and truth. Marriage, Shabbat, Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Supporting the temple and the priesthood, providing for the altar, and firstlings. In their minds, these were the most important subjects that made for faithful service to God. And because of their exile to Babylon, and all the changes that their culture and religion had undergone as a result, just what constituted proper observance of each of these seven subjects that define their behavior and their faith is addressed. Now notice that in in, in a sense, the first subject, obedience to God's Torah, is broken down into the next six subjects that follow it. Now we're going to go through these one by one. But be aware, none of this is new law. The Torah regulated each of these subjects already. Rather, this is about spelling out matters of the law where the community had fallen down severely or simply disregarded them. And I see this as fundamentally about dealing with the question that I'm asked nearly daily. And I ponder endlessly. How do we do the law in a 21st century Western civilization outside of a Torah-based society and in the light of the advent of Messiah Yeshua. How do we do it? Things have changed drastically for these Jews since those awesome days of Moses at Mount Sinai. At 
that time, they were a new nation of people who governed themselves. They saw the Lord as their actual king. By definition, all, or at least almost all, of their leaders were Hebrews. They lived in a primitive society in tents. They didn't even farm. Most weapons were still Stone Age, made of flint. But by Nehemiah's time, the world had evolved and advanced dramatically. The Persians were the lone superpower. They held the largest empire the world had ever known. Tools were now made of iron. Cities were advanced. Engineering allowed higher and stronger defensive walls. Crop irrigation for canals and rivers was becoming commonplace. Money was now in use. And it was becoming standardized as the way that trade took place. Pagans and Hebrews lived together in a multicultural society. But most importantly for the Jews, their former homeland of Judah was just another of many Persian provinces. They bowed to a Persian king. The Jews of Judah were Persian Jews. Even their local governor, Nehemiah, who was a Jew by birth, was nonetheless Persian by nationality. And he too was a servant of the Persian king. He was a king's cupbearer. The Jews were allowed much religious freedom so long as their religious laws didn't impede upon the Persian laws. Then, just how much of the Torah could they strictly obey? Just how might they observe those laws? These things had limits, boundaries, governed by their everyday circumstances and their political realities over which they had no control. And yet, their stated goal was to obey the Torah. As stated in verse 30, we will live by God's Torah, given by Moses the servant of God. We will perform and obey all the mitzvot, rulings, and laws of Adonai our God. Now take notice. Not a new and revised Torah. Not a series of new Jewish traditions that they would just relabel as Torah. But rather... As it says, the Torah given by Moses was to be their guide. They would be devoted to the original Torah, the actual Torah. Ah, but how shall they do this, given their present circumstances? First says verse 31, They intend on keeping marriages pure. And this is defined as not giving their daughters to the peoples of the land. Am Eretz. Am Eretz. Peoples of the land. Or taking the daughters of the Am Eretz as wives for their Jewish sons. Now let's be clear. No doubt on the surface, this is speaking of a kind of racial purity and segregation that when viewed through a modern Western race-sensitive lens seems bigoted, if not ugly. But 21st 21st century Western society is not the context 
And in this era, race, hear this, race was always indicative of religion. Okay? This had nothing to do with skin color, hair type, nose shape, even language. By definition, each different race represented a certain nationality. And each nationality worshipped their own set of gods. I want to give you an example of what I mean. Though it isn't as much so today, but it was a mere 30 or so years ago. In America, the terms American and Christian were at one time functionally synonymous. I can remember when I went into the military, it's a pretty good memory, that's a long time ago. It was in the mid-1960s that never were you asked if you were a Christian because it was assumed. The matter was only about which denomination of Christian you were specifically. I can also remember some of the inductees having no idea how to answer the question, saying that they didn't have a denomination. In fact, they'd never been to church. They didn't know the first thing about Christianity, but they still automatically considered themselves a Christian because they were an American. Now, of course, this wasn't 100%, but it was pretty close. So at the time of Nehemiah, if one was a Moabite, you of course weren't a worshiper of the God of the Jews. If one was an Ammonite, you naturally didn't worship the gods of Moab or the God of the Jews, and so on and so on. Thus the term Am Eretz, which is a very general term, that here means anyone who's not Jewish, was by definition anyone who didn't worship Israel's God, and that was because, guess what? They weren't Jews. However, it went without saying that if a young man found a non-Jewish girl who wished to become Jewish, then by definition she was no longer Am Aretz, a people of the land, a foreigner. She became a Jew. So, her marriage to a Jewish boy was acceptable. So, the bottom line to verse 31 is that one of the statements of faith is that worshippers of Yehovah will only marry another worshiper of Yehovah. And isn't that a very good and pertinent statement of faith for any modern believer in Yeshua? Anyone who's a believer that's married a non-believer can tell you about the challenges and sometimes the heartbreak that they've had to face because they made an unwise choice that's discouraged in the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. Well, the next statement of faith is in verse 32. And it regards Sabbath. Or better, some important elements of observing Sabbath. The issue is not whether to observe it. That's a given. Rather, the issue is twofold. 
on Shabbat, what could a Jew's contact with a pagan involve? And also, what activities must not be done or it's a violation of Shabbat law? Here the stipulation is that no Jew should buy or sell to a foreigner an Amoretz on Shabbat. Now notice the Amoretz are not prohibited from buying and selling goods in Jerusalem or anywhere else in Judah. It's only that Jews can't do business with them on the seventh day. So this is not seeking to control the behavior of non-Jews. Rather, it's Jews vowing to control themselves. Now in reality, this buying and selling prohibition is somewhat of a new wrinkle on the Sabbath law. We don't find this admonition in the Torah or anywhere else prior to Nehemiah. So, what this is, is an interpretation of Exodus 20, 8-11 and Deuteronomy 5, 12-15. Here's what it says in Exodus 20, 8-11. Remember the day Shabbat to set it apart for God. You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God. On it you are not to do any kind of work. Not you, your son, or your daughter, nor your male or female slaves, not your livestock, not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates of your property. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why Adonai blessed the day Shabbat, and he separated it for himself. There is nothing here in Exodus, not in Deuteronomy either, that directly addresses the issue of buying and selling, either as regards Hebrews or non-Hebrews. However, the implication is quite heavy that this shouldn't occur because it would certainly seem that buying and selling is the result of normal work and thus shouldn't be done. Obviously, this was not a matter of universal agreement in Nehemiah's day or before. And you know what? I can tell you It still isn't, even among religious Jews today. However, probably, as interpreted by Ezra, it was determined that buying and selling was normal work and that it had been a usual practice for Jews to buy from and sell to non-Jews, even on Shabbat. Now, however, this was deemed to be a violation of the Torah law concerning Sabbath. You know, today in Israel... It is common for a religious Jew to buy at an Arab market or to eat at an Arab restaurant or to ride in an Arab taxi on Shabbat because some see buying and selling as only applying to transactions between Jews. In the West, this is going to hurt your head, where leisure activities are a huge part of our lives, then should we regard going to the movies on Shabbat as a violation because we buy a ticket? How about driving your kids to a sporting event and buying gas? 
Oh, that hurt, didn't it? And then maybe buying a cold drink after that. How about going out to eat on Shabbat? We may not be cooking, but somebody else is. But if that someone else isn't a believer and or they don't observe Shabbat, does it change the decision? I'm not here today to instruct you on Sabbath do's and don'ts. The point is that here in Nehemiah, the issue at hand was whether Jews should buy from or sell to pagans on Shabbat even if the pagans regularly buy and sell to one another on Shabbat. And their official determination is no, this should not occur. Well, next at the end of verse 32 is another interesting one. The issue of Shemitah, Sabbath year. That is, the seventh year of each seven-year cycle of years. Shemitah means release. And in regards to each seventh year, it means to release the land from work and to release people from paying their debts that year. Essentially, this is only reaffirming the validity of the Torah law on the matter. Here is what we read in the law about the Sabbath year. In Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11, we read this. For six years you are to sow your land with seed and gather in its harvest, but the seventh year you are to let it rest and lie fallow so that the poor among your people can eat. And what they leave, the wild animals in the countryside can eat. Do the same with your vineyard and olive grove. Then in Leviticus 25, 1-7, we read this. Adonai spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai and he said, Tell the people of Israel when you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Shabbat rest for Adonai. Six years you'll sow your field. Six years you'll prune your grapevines and gather their produce. But in the seventh year is to be a Shabbat of complete rest for the land. A Shabbat for Adonai. You will neither sow your field nor prune your grapevines. You are not to harvest what grows by itself from the seeds left by your harvest. You are not to gather the grapes of your untended vines. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. But what the land produces during the year of during um, the year of Shabbat will be food for all of you, you, your servant, your maid, anyone living near you, your livestock and wild animals on your land. Everything your land produces may be used for food. Deuteronomy fifteen one through three. At the end of every seven years, you are to have a shemitah. Here is how the shemitah is to be done. Every creditor is to give up what he's loaned to his fellow member of the community. He's not to force his neighbor or relative to repay it because Adonai's time of remission has been proclaimed. You may demand that a foreigner repay his debt, but you are to release your claim on whatever brother owes you. Now what you may have noticed is that in Exodus and Leviticus it's all about giving the land rest. But when we get to Deuteronomy, the element of debt repayment is added to the mix. But then a question has to be asked. Does this mean that all debt is to be canceled in total? Does it mean that every seventh year, all bond servants are to be totally, permanently released? See, because that sounds exactly what's like what's to happen in the year of Jubilee. 
something that only comes around every 50 years, not every seven. Listen to Leviticus 25. 8 through 13, you are to count seven Shabbats of years, seven times seven years, that is 49 years. And then on the tenth day of the seventh month on Yom Kippur, you are to sound a blast on the shofar, you are to sound the shofar all throughout your land. And you are to consecrate the fiftieth year, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It's to be a yovel, a, a jubilee for you. You will return everyone to the land he owns. Everyone is to return to his family. That 50th year will be a yovel, a jubilee for you. In that year you're not to sow, harvest what grows by itself, or gather the grapes of unintended vines, because it's a jubilee. It will be holy for you. Whatever the fields produce will be food for all of you. In this year of yovel, every one of you is to return to the land he owns. <clears throat> so there have been various interpretations over the centuries of what's to happen every seventh year, especially as regards debts and bond servants. In general, but not universally, the belief is that the intent of the law is to cancel the debt payment due that year, not the entire debt. And those bond servants may go home for the seventh year, but they have to come back the next year if they still owe debt. And in fact, that is what we seem to see in the stipulation of the fourth statement of faith here in Nehemiah. We will forego planting and harvesting our fields during the seventh year and collecting debts then. Notice, not canceling debts, but rather collecting debts in the sabbatical year. Thus Ezra and the Jews of Judah during Nehemiah's day have interpreted the law of the sabbatical year to mean no planting and harvesting and no collecting debts during that year. So we see this pattern of trying to figure out how to obey God's laws as He intended them but under evolving circumstances in the spirit they were meant. And I maintain that this is a never-ending task for God's believers. And it applies to all believers of Yeshua even in the 21st century. Yes, it is certainly a lot easier to just declare that all of God's laws are null and void. That solves the whole problem. Of course, that was something that Yeshua emphatically said we don't do. Then if we on our own, you see, cancel all of God's laws, well, we can do whatever we want. And whatever we do, we declare righteous. But that's wrong. And it's sin. It's rebellion. Our job is to constantly think upon how to apply God's laws to our lives within our evolving culture and within our changing circumstances. Next week we'll conclude chapter 10.